Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Carrie Lynn Evans welcoming you back to New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm looking forward to sharing with you Ancient Greece and Rome in Modern Science Fiction, Amazing Antiquity by Dr. Ross Clare. This wonderful book introduces and analyzes the reception of classical antiquity in contemporary science fiction. By using up-to-date methods from classical reception theory, science fiction analysis, and fictional world studies, The book will help furnish the reader's understanding of the ways in which the literature, culture, history, and mythology of ancient Greece and Rome are appropriated and represented across multiple media platforms in the science fiction genre today. The book will therefore serve as an entry point into several areas of study, the reception of classics in popular culture, antiquity in modern media, the uses of the ancient world in science fiction, and broader science fiction criticism. The chapters, structured by medium, principally offer a rough chronological overview of that medium and its treatment of ancient history, mythology, literature, and culture. An abundance of case studies from literature, film, and television, and video games, including Star Trek, Battlestar Galactica, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, and Fallout New Vegas, just to name a few, show how classical antiquity is reused, encountered, and re-encountered by creators and consumers of the present. Claire shows how we bounce off images of this history, and it bounces off us, a reciprocation that creates new visions of Greece and of Rome. In addition to this book, Ross Clare is the author of Ancient Greece and Rome in Video Games with Bloomsbury Academic Press, as well as having written some short stories and video game scripts. He used to teach at the University of Liverpool, and he joins me today to talk about his latest scholarly book. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Literary Studies. Ross, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me uh, here. (laughs) So let's start with you. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to uh, be interested in researching these types of topics. Um, Well, I don't want to go too far back, but um, I... uh... It was actually all started kind of by accident during undergrad when I, I found that uh, I was doing a course in ancient history and found that there was a, a whole module about um, uh, the ancient world, kind of Greeks and Romans and such uh, in film and TV. And um, okay, that's that's what I knew, you know what I mean? That's um, that's Those are the things that I knew and I was interested in. And so I ended up doing kind of undergraduate master's and then PhD thesis in, in uh ultimately in like classics and popular culture. And that's kind of, here I am. My master's was actually in Greeks, Roman science fiction. Um, and this was an opportunity to really, really get into it. Um, yeah, not to sound too self-serving, of course, because it was also, there's no kind of solo authored monograph on this yet. And I wanted to provide that. 
Excellent. Uh, so as I mentioned in the introduction, you're an independent scholar and you're currently employed as a game writer. So I find the journey from a humanities PhD to a non-academic career tremendously interesting. I'm sure many of our listeners do too. So can you tell us about your experience? Sure. Um, I, I suppose like many of us, uh, I found that it was it was ultimately impossible to, to, to make a living from academia. So uh, maybe two years back, uh, I found that I made the quite a difficult decision to, to to not teach anymore, which I really enjoyed, uh, and to go and find work in the private sector. I haven't necessarily given up on um, scholarship, of course. Uh, rather, I um, it's sort of secondary now to to game writing, as you say, uh, which is ultimately all about researching and providing creative uh, input. And of course, writing and character work, which uh, you might be surprised to to know that uh, studying something like um, Greeks and Romans and history and mythology and such uh, is actually incredibly helpful. Kind of what to do, what not to do, kind of basic narrative frameworks and things. So yeah, there's definitely some crossover. Excellent. Uh, so next, maybe tell us how you came to write this particular book. This particular book, it was, um, yeah, I wish there was a much more uh, exciting story, but uh, I really like science fiction a lot. And um, I'd already got a handle on uh, sort of classical reception, as we call it, um, as much as anything, I guess, uh, because I, I, I uh, researched video games prior to this and um, produced a PhD thesis and a book on that too. And then it came around that, you know, that's out, that's done, it's published, and I, I need a new thing. What do I like along with games? I like science fiction a lot. But um, it's also enormous. Uh, it is, it's just, if you take into account every medium the science fiction is on, which I haven't, by the way, um, everything from literature, TV, film, games, comics, everything, it is vast. And um, I wanted to see if I could navigate through that in a kind of almost chronological approach. And hopefully uh, I managed it. Yeah, I thought you covered a lot of ground. I thought it was extremely helpful. Uh, but for the audience, let's start with the basics. I wonder mm -hmm. if you could tell us about, uh, first of all, the range of media that you selected, uh, also what classical reception means, and then explain perhaps uh, some of the major aims of your book. Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, I, th I think... It's fair to say for anyone who's not um, in on classical reception, it is ultimately about the reception of the classics, right? It's about so the classics we refer to are um, typically Greece and Rome. So it's sort of fifth century Greece and sort of the Roman Republic and Empire. But really, it is wider than that. Everything from Homer's Odyssey right way back when to the um, to the late Roman Empire and the kind of materials within it. So you're thinking history, mythology, stories, archaeology, art, everything like that. Uh, how they kind of factor into um, things that happen now, or rather in the modern era, right? So my thing is games and science fiction, but it really could mean anything. It can and does mean the the influence or impact of uh, classical architectural styles on government buildings to um the the use of particular aesthetics in a comic book right so 
that's what Glasgow reception is all about. It's kind of unearthing those things, I guess you might call them influences, references, and, and, and things like that. Um, from the kind of smallest kind of nods to classics to full reworkings of myth and uh, coming to understand why they've been made in the first place, what has been done to make them and what kind of uh, overall effect it might have on uh, a reader or listener or viewer or player. Yeah. So um, that's kind of, that was always my thing. Right. So, uh, what were the other questions now? <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to ask you to make a comment about the type of uh, media you selected to cover and hmm. what your major aims were. Sure. Um, so all of that but applied to science fiction, right? The, the idea was uh, to sort of go through, I, I quite literally just made a list from the sort of early 20th century through to now um, so that I could to consume that media, right? I, I went for a very, very broad sort of scope, I guess you call it, right? Um, because um, my previous publication had been a very, very narrow sort of thing. I picked maybe sort of 15 or so games to really analyze. At this time around, I thought it might be interesting for something that really hasn't been... Um, covered in an incredible amount of depth rather it's 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 so far it's been about picking out particular examples particular works i i wanted to do something more like tell a story and and track the kind of the kind of movements and evolutions of science fiction as a genre and it was kind of always the plan to use literature right so uh you know novels effectively film and TV and games. I really wanted to kind of do all those things because they're often very much interwoven. Um, in some cases, quite literally, a film is a is, is, is adapted from a novel, as it were. Um, yeah, so yeah, I thought it might be useful really for people to be able to just, just read a thing with lots and lots of different examples. And the hope is... Um, First, of course, they, they would they would get that story and enjoy reading it and, and, and come away feeling that they appreciate how Greeks, Greek and Roman kind of material has has really kind of been something like lifeblood to the genre. But also, if they're really interested in something in particular, like how something sounds, then they might go away and take a look at it themselves, whether for fun or academic purposes, whatever works. Absolutely. So you start with literature. Uh, and as you explained, this is the largest section because it reflects the largest body of work, which makes sense. Um, and you work through it chronologically in the book. So let's do that here, too. What do you find in the early science fiction works uh, in terms of their engagement with classical elements and the important themes that come through? Hmm. Well, early, early is um, actually kind of beyond the scope of this, I suppose, but where I start is this sort of uh, just after Jules Verne and H.G. Wells sort of thing, so lots of Lost Worlds fiction, and um, that typically involves characters going to a place that has been lost forever, and in kind of Greek and Roman context, that's usually Atlantis, right? And um, most, more often than not, it's, it's quite 
straightforward. There will typically be heroes. They will often um, kind of clash. There's a, there's a lot of culture clash between uh, the, the characters in these kinds of stories and the ancients who are there. It's um, almost always the case from my experience that uh, it's about preserved ancient culture, not just kind of structures and things, but they go into these worlds and find actual descendants of ancient people. Uh, it wasn't always the the easiest read, as you might expect from something at the beginning of the 20th century. It's very written for a very different audience um, uh, than it is in the 21st. But there was clear engagement with uh, the ancient world, kind of, I suppose you might say quite direct, because it is about fulfilling that desire to really meet ancient people as close as you could, aside from time travel, of course. Do you find then that they were uh, presenting ancient Greece or classical Rome as like ideals that they were trying to encounter? Hmm. That definitely shines through in science fiction in particular periods. At this point, I think, um, considering what's in the book and what I've read since, um, it can be a little complex. Uh, there is almost always some kind of reverence for the ancient past. It's almost as if the author is interested in these ancient peoples and places. So naturally there's a sort of fascination that often borders on wow these people are incredible uh, how amazing you are but if you take something like uh, arthur conan doyle's um the maricot deep it seems more like in that particular example that it's about using these ancient peoples and their customs as a kind of mirror to see what we do and do not agree with i guess and what we do and do not need uh, as a country or a society or as a world going forward okay so it's not just like straightforward imperial worship or anything well there's definitely a lot of that of course i think when it comes <laughs> to um, when it comes to kind of talking about the ancients right the ancient peoples that they that they will come across um it, it can be a mixed bag um there is there's definitely a colonial flavor to the literature. How far you could go in and actually say that uh, that the authors are really kind of championing this stuff is 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 um is kind of hard to say. Again, it definitely depends, and this is a really tough thing about it, right? Is that it depends on the 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 motives, motivations, and the beliefs of a writer that you may not have access to uh, very many materials about. So in some cases, it seems like this is a perfectly natural thing for our characters to do, is to go here, save the day, rescue the princess, steal a bunch of riches. Um, and of course, that doesn't always happen. That's It's a trend in that kind of literature, but not all the time. Okay. So you also express a very um, interesting insight, I think, about mid-century science fiction works and the way that its authors, in your words, practically worship the seemingly boundless scientific advancement of their day, uh, which makes sense for post-World War II. So you trace the way they elevate the values of science <clears throat> above both religion and history to, and I'll quote you here, drive an ideology of modernity home to the reader. 
And then in doing so, they seem to adopt uh, almost a religious uh, inflected language, somewhat ironically. So tell us about what you see happening here. All right. That's really strange hearing yourself read back to you. Yeah. (laughs) uh, I suppose I'm talking there mainly about there's quite a lot of big names in in that kind of section of the book so isaac asimov and and such like there's a lot of these hard-hitting authors in the uh, 40s 50s um who were often scientists as well like arthur c Clarke, for example and they really believe very very much in what science can do and that can in some quite a lot of cases actually kind of push the past to the side uh, so that actually there, there is no reflection on the past at all. But when it does come up, it's conceived of as something unhelpful. Uh, I think in terms of history, unhelpful in terms of religion, science fiction is often quite hostile at this point, like really quite uh, almost savage. Uh, there's a story and a couple of stories in there, I think from Clifford Simak, Simak. And um, yeah, that could be, that could be, uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, so the, the science is clearly like it, it's it's um, everything to these science fiction writers. You you know you can't have them for that, right? But uh, it will come at the expense, I suppose you might say, uh, of the the ancient world and any, in fact, any historical world. Um, I I don't know if I maybe covering too much um, uh, De Camp. Uh, I just couldn't get enough of his stuff because it was um, it was all about there, there, there were two there's two stories that he does um, less darkness fall where he travels back to the uh, late Roman Empire and the glory that was uh, in which the characters go to a very very close facsimile of classical Athens and it seems that the point of these was to go back and say actually these places aren't that good at all I don't like them they smell the people are horrible. Um, and I miss my kind of modern comforts and and uh, often my democracy too. Right? Yeah, uh, it's really entertaining to read, if I'm honest. Especially if you spend many many years uh, reading about how um, incredible classical civilization is supposed to be. Um, it can be quite refreshing. Um, I wouldn't say it's necessarily refreshing to have a science first thing, but certainly refreshing to have something that will uh, laugh at the idea that the past is something we need. It may sound weird coming from a historian. No, that's really interesting. I think you're right, though. I think it's important to keep the past in perspective and not have rose glasses about about some kind of uh, ideal yesteryear. But moving forward in time to the new wave period, as we call it, for science fiction, um, you start to see some new trends, which I think it's really interesting how you connect it to, you know, the contemporary um, attitudes of the time. Um, So, of course, we've got male authors, but now, of course, we're starting to see a lot more female authors as well. So what's going on with classical reception in this period? Oh, this was my favorite, the the whole new wave thing, right? So um, I think quintessential new wave, um, for those listening, would be something like Philip K. Dick. But uh, as you say, there's uh, feminist science fiction, particularly exploding in the 70s. And um, not just feminist science fiction either, like just women who write science fiction. Um, There can often be a difference there. But they're often very challenging too. Uh, I can't always 
it's not as easy, I suppose, to figure out what it is they're saying about the ancient world. So if you have a uh, gate to women's country, uh, very challenging politics, very challenging message. Uh, it seems to be um, using a classical template or ancient materials to structure a fictional world that allows for interrogation of like a patriarchal society, a hyper-patriarchal society. Uh, the, uh, the result overall of a, of, of, of a new wave use of classical materials is it spins completely on, it, on its axis. So you have all these super scientists, science fiction writers in the mid-century period who, were, who just believe in looking forward, you might say, by the new wave of the 60s um, through to the, into the 70s, it, it's, it's, it's not just post-war at this point. It's kind of people who have grown up post-war and found that everything seems kind of lacking to them. And they begin to write um, not in favor of science, not in favor of the science that provided these horrible weapons that uh, were kind of allowed out during the, uh, the Second World War, and uh, not in favor of uh, contemporary politics either that would send America to Vietnam. This was more about revisiting the ancient past and finding what you might say slightly more left field things to latch onto and even to believe in. So whereas you might have traveled back in time to meet this kind of gritty history uh, now these writers are taking on bits of the pre-Socratic philosophers, so these prior to Socrates, Plato, etc., uh, who have some really kind of far-out ideas, uh, but finding meaning in them. The New Wave is all about finding a kind of alternative meaning, a, a New Age-flavored meaning, and they would take uh, the ancient world on and do this there's there's a lot of, I think if you're going to hit any particular period of science fiction and literature, it would be new wave to, to to see how those nuances unfold, how these writers are, are are taking and ripping apart the ancient world and putting it back together and and and, and just throwing it out there to to say all sorts of things about the human experience and about existentialism and the nature of reality. I suppose I want to make clear before finishing this point, that that wasn't always what mid-century writers wanted to do in every case, but that seems to be what a lot of new wave writers want to do. Uh, rather than a straightforward, we're modern, we're better than them. It's now, we're modern, but actually everything's going horribly wrong. Um, can we get some help, please? And then they tried to find it in classical uh, writings and, uh, and mythologies. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. It is a really compelling and interesting period um, for cultural production. And then we get to the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> right? And, oh, um, 
Yeah, it's funny how things ebb and flow. Because uh, again, in this section, when you talk about some of the science fiction in the literature of the 1980s, you're making the connection between um, the work, uh, the classical reception and the sociopolitical context. And interestingly, there's a renewed interest in this decade um, in the Roman Empire, the mm. stoic masculine imagery of its strongmen. Uh, we'll talk about movies later, but I just think of like the popularity of the action film at the time. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, it just goes with the flavor of the 80s. So can you give us some examples that illustrate this interest in, and explain that connection? Yeah, uh, you have. Uh, I actually enjoyed some of them, um, but there were a lot of them, <laughs> if that makes sense. There's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of them, like a lot, a lot, a lot. I don't know which example I could conceivably pick. Um I'm just taking a look. I actually have the my bookcase right behind me. Uh, Birds of prey. That was that was okay. Yes, it's um, lots and lots and lots of stories, often on the same label. Uh, they're almost always about uh, a Roman man, so they're they're set in the past. Uh, let's say David Drake's Birds of Birds of Prey, for example. Reading off the front cover right now, uh, it's two six two A.D. And you have an imperial agent named uh, Aulus Perennius. Uh, the problem is an alien invasion. So that's the kind of thing you're looking at there with the the, the 80s and early 90s uh, literary production uh, is that our uh, a hero now is not a time traveler. It's not a person here in the here and now who's encountering the ancient world. It's uh, an actual Roman. I think, there, I think maybe I have like five examples in there. And uh, they 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 will follow a similar, not always a similar plot. I won't be fair to say, but a similar tone. This Roman and usually his Roman bodies will save the day, and it's it's um it's that it is actually it is that. Do you know what I mean? It's uh it's the man is the hero here, but he isn't just any man. He's a Roman man, and because he's a Roman man, he's a super manly manly man. Yeah, I reckon yeah. everyone's going to get what I'm talking about there. Yeah. I think it's it's because he's big and strong. He's often very kind of uh, uh, he doesn't speak an awful. He doesn't speak an awful lot. He he says things when he needs to. He doesn't have anything against anyone in particular. He he just kind of goes. So he's like Ron Swanson, you know. He just he he wants to do his own thing. And um, that usually involves some kind of call to duty, which he seems as something he has to do. So the Roman, that's what the Roman soldier will do. He will go out there and he will do something, whether it's alternative history, so uh, an ancient past in which something is altered slightly, or a Roman empire that never falls. That's quite a popular one, an empire that exists to the here and now. So it is still the Roman empire with a few kind of modern trappings. Or something set in the actual ancient past, uh, it, it almost always centers around a man who does his manliest to man his way through the problem. <laughs> not uh, there's anything wrong with you know men, obviously, you know what I mean. But it's, of course, it's not, not all men, not all men. <laughs> no, definitely not that. <laughs> I didn't say that. You did. No, no, I'm sorry. I'm just having fun. Because <laughs> you are, but um, it, it's. Yeah, it's 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 quite quite it's quite challenging to 
I mean, they weren't all written at the, exactly the same time to be read all at once, right? So I have to kind of keep that in mind. Uh, but there's definitely definitely a trend there in that, and it carries right through the 80s. There are some kind of odd ones out, uh, but that is that is what I found. There was one that was about Alexander the Great, but it was exactly the same uh, in the sense that Alexander is uh, resurrected because he's amazing, because he's capital G, capital M, a great man, so that he can um, provide good sport on an alien battlefield. But he's so great that he ends up overcoming his captors, kind of figuring out what's going on, figuring out that he's being poked and prodded to do things and breaks his way free. Oh, that almost sounds like the plot of The Predator. Okay. Yeah, okay. Um, Okay, so uh, your book also details how much science fiction of this era and even later came to become closely associated with conservative right-wing politics, often using classical themes and elements to push a political message. So what's going on here? This this seems to happen to me a lot, though I find that the things that I really like have a what I would consider to be a, a, a dark side, if that's fair to say. I don't want to push any particular message or anything. I think I probably fell into that trap in the book itself. But uh, yeah, I find that science fiction has quite a strong right-wing kind of component to it. And some of that is kind of playing around and experimenting with the possibilities of uh particular politics so you know economic politics and things which you know is a thought experiment in itself but it it goes quite far and and a little further than i i realized it would uh i wouldn't want to quote any of this stuff but it, it it can it can get a little difficult to somebody who's not used to that sort of thing or or who doesn't subscribe to conservative politics and say very conservative politics but that is definitely a trend. It's a, it's um, not dissimilar to the 80s stuff. It's about strong men being men, doing manly things. But it, it can get very hostile. So the, uh, the antagonist is usually... Um, yeah, the antagonist is often on the left wing, often maybe environmental or something, or, or a kind of pretend Marxist or something like that. You know, uh, uh, a sort of what you might have found in the 70s and 80s, uh, a, a trade unionist who's kind of on the take. So he's, he's they're no good. The, the idea is that not only is the left wing no good as a political practice or framework, but the everybody involved is actually a, a terrible person and a threat to freedom and and uh, they need to be killed. You know what I mean? It's, it, it, you know, it, that's how far it goes sometimes. Uh, how much more did you want from that? Because I don't know how much I can say. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, that's fine. I think it's a, it's a really interesting pattern um, to think of a sort of like Ayn Rand does mm. um, sci-fi is kind of how it occurs to me. I'd, I don't think I've personally encountered it, but it is just really interesting to know that you managed to find that there's enough from this era that it really forms a pattern. So it's interesting. Yeah, I was, I was surprised. Yeah. Um, 
And I mean, maybe the reason why um, I haven't encountered that stuff, maybe it's not the kind of stuff that lasts on the shelf very long. You know, maybe mm. it was a thing at the time, but it, but it, you know, doesn't really appeal anymore. So you don't really find it on used bookstore shelves anymore or something. I don't know. Do you know that's weird because after I'd done the research for the book, I, I find myself in used bookshops to grab the science fiction that I want to get. And uh, I keep an eye out for these names and, and, and many times they, they are there. Uh, and I don't know what to think of that, really. I don't know what that means. There isn't, I, I didn't find very much in the way of um, left wing science fiction, uh, certainly not with a crossover with the classical world. So it might be there's this huge body of. Um, left-wing utopian futuristic literature but I haven't I didn't encounter very much at all there's a there's you know some with echoes of it which you might find in the um, in the book here especially chapter two uh, I, I won't pick them all out but there is always another side to what's going on you know if there's a strong right-wing current in science fiction that doesn't mean it's all strong right-wing hyper-masculine stories but you know, it's still there, still going. You wonder who the audience is, but I, I guess it's, I don't know, it's not me. Yeah, well, it, like you say, it goes to the bigger questions of what's really interesting about classical reception, I think. And that is that it becomes a bit of a mirror to project upon, you know, what we think about ourselves. And um, I know that right now in science fiction inflected video games, especially, but probably literature as well, maybe comic books is an interest in Norse mythology, but it's the same kind of thing, right? What, what they're finding in Norse mythology that appeals is the manliness, the supposed historical manly man who just like you say, a co- you know, just mans his way through everything. And uh, so, it, so maybe, maybe it's a matter of trends, maybe in the nineties, late eighties, nineties, maybe the focus was on, um, the Roman Empire as this fixation, um, whereas now um, it's, it seems to be more on this notion of the Viking. But um, that brings me to my next question, which was, how would you characterize classical reception in the science fiction of the 21st century? Oh, okay. Um, so classical science fiction, right in the here and now. Uh, I didn't do an enormous amount of work on the period, Um I did find Dan Simmons, of course, at the turn of the millennium, which I, I believe you're familiar with. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's And I found with, with that and with writers who were making their name in the 80s and 90s and still writing and new writers in the 2000s and 2010s, uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff in here. There's a lot of stuff that feels like science fiction from the past, uh, not in any kind of... Um, uh, not trying to be critical there. I mean, you have uh, the Just City, for example, or the Cleft by Doris Lessing, um, and it, and it reminds me of the the roots that were set in the seventies of feminist science fiction uh, and female written science fiction, which um, I I won't even pretend anymore. It's great. I love it. You know, I'm really happy that that, that has survived and developed and and evolved. Uh, I would say that Dan Simmons, like Ilium and, uh, and Olympos, are, they have a very classic science fiction feel in that it, it, it tends to center around a man. And it's a knowledgeable man, too. It's, it's always a his, historian. You'll, you'll find that in a lot of the mid-century stuff is that 
the, these people who are traveling back to or encountering the ancient world in their science fiction stories are super knowledgeable historians. Uh, and, and I found that to be the case in, in, in Dan Simmons' uh, two books. But there's also this really cool thing, which I'm going to try not to go on and on and on about. This, I don't know if you could say that it's it's like the new wave again, but it's it's this sort of deep kind of sense that nothing's quite right and we're turning away once again, or not even turning away from science, but we are looking to these other things. 21st century literature will take back these mythological creatures uh, from, from particularly from ancient Greece and sort of knit them into this wider, much more vague spiritual network of spirituality. It's so hard to explain, it seems. But you had this very fixed sort of, this is what science fiction is in the mid-century. It's about science. And then you had the new wave, and it was about being a, a bit more abstract and a bit stranger and using classical materials to to illustrate that you know, the nature of reality itself is subjective, for example, which you didn't always find. You'd, and you certainly didn't find that in the 80s and 90s uh, with the stuff that I was looking at, which was very much straightforward, man conquers world, man saves world, man saves day. And then when we get to the 21st century, it's almost as if we've gone one, two, one, two, and we're back to the new wave again with a much more fluid understanding of of what the meaning of things are you say that i think the meaning of things and and that's that's the most interesting thing to me about 21st century science fiction literature is that it is no longer it, it doesn't feel binary right now it doesn't feel like they're saying the ancient world is the best or the ancient world is the worst it's it's uh, taking bits and pieces of science religion philosophy mythology spirituality and trying to forge something new with that and it's cool it's a great time to be a science fiction fan oh i totally agree i love i love the way you characterize that um my own research had um not yeah with with dan simmons somewhat but but um beyond that too with uh, neil gaiman somewhat and so forth has also found that trend of an interest in um uh, I think what some callers would call a post-secular reenchantment, and mm. so that definitely seems to be um, the doors are just kind of blown open. Like everything goes, and yeah, there's more of an interest in in uh, reinvestigating everything about Gosh. what we know. So what a I, phrase! That was a wonderful phrase. What was it? Post oh, post-secular, a uh, post-secular interest in reenchantment. Mm. Yeah, it's total. So, like you're saying, like uh, an interest in um, spiritual but not religious, and um, bringing magic back. And um, and so I was looking at the way Dan Simmons reintroduces the gods and some kind of elements like that, but also Neil Gaiman's American Gods. And the idea that we don't believe in them as divinities like we uh, maybe once did, the way tra traditional conservative religion once did, but we don't want to make everything just material mm -hmm. um, and unenchanted. And so mm -hmm. 
people have a love of enchantment. And so this is, this is coming back into storytelling, but in different ways. So that's exactly, I wish I could have said it exactly like that because that's what we're finding now. Um, and the way that classical mythology, uh, it's almost always mythology factors into that is as one of many sort of pillars supporting that idea. So you won't necessarily find people want to champion a belief in uh, Hera, uh, but you might find that these authors will use Hera along with like a bunch of other goddesses who may or may not represent uh, motherhood, mother earth, that kind of thing. And say that maybe this is something we should consider. We don't have to give up our wonderful computers and things, but we should also consider uh, how, how nice the sky and grass are. But it, of course, goes much deeper than that. As you say, it's it's not abandoning one thing or another, but almost taking everything, I guess, being spiritual and scientific, being material and abstract. Yeah, Exactly. I love the fact that you found that as well. Uh, when you were, you know, you had a different approach and a different focus, but you found this as well with the contemporary science fiction. It's just really affirming. So. I first first found it in the next chapter um, years and years ago, and and I've never left, let, never let it go. This this feeling I got when I was watching or reading certain things. It's it's definitely there. Very cool. Well. Let's move on to film and TV. Yay. And we'll, now we'll go back in time. So kind of mm -hmm. to the beginning of when you started to study uh, the, or, um, the, the earliest period that you were studying of classic reception in film and TV. Um, and it seems like what you find as a major theme at the beginning here is um, the troublesome uppity Amazonian women. And Ooh, so yeah. she seems to just, you know, cause trouble everywhere. <laughs> That's what she does. That's what the men who wrote the scripts and the men who directed the films <laughs> made them do. Yeah. Um, the cat women on the moon is uh, is kind of a quintessential example. Uh, and uh, I mean, it kind of, the title sort of says it really. Um, a bunch of men and a woman uh, travel to the moon, find that there are cat women and this is a kind of Amazonian-ish in a sort of classical setting. Uh, but there are maybe, I don't know how many I ended up getting in here, maybe five or six uh, examples of Amazon-ish women. So the Amazon in, in, in Greek mythology, I, I guess people will be familiar with, uh, is often considered, even when we look back on the classical Greece, is often considered... Uh, a, a sort of the kind of woman that a male-led society believes women shouldn't be. So taking up arms and, you know, battering folks and things. And that's the fear here in these 50s, in particular these 50s uh, films in which men would come across women and these women are acting not like the women they know, shall we say. They're They're breaking free of these... And it's 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 I don't I don't I don't know an enormous amount about um, how things were going down in America at the time, but uh, I guess the whole twentieth century is a story of of women fighting very very hard for rights for you know actual equal rights, and perhaps this is 
a reflection of this, that the Amazons are being used here to to present a kind of, I suppose you might say a modern woman using an ancient archetype to present a modern woman. And by modern, these principally male filmmakers seem to be in, um, a, a woman who sort of stands up for herself and, and, and destroys things and will punch a man in the face if she needs to. Right? <laughs> uh, and they do, <laughs> they do that. But what I wanted to, what I, what I, what I would do different, I think at the beginning of each of these chapters is resist the urge to see these authors very simplistic. So all of these films about the Amazon women are about um, men putting women uh, in these huge inverted commas in their place as um, a patriarchal society would, would have it, right? Uh, but I found that Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, which I think people will know, if not the film, then the many, many parodies of it. Uh, it, it, it can be reread. It is about an Amazon woman who literally becomes Amazonian. She becomes huge and angry. Uh, and it's, it's, it's not, you wouldn't say it's a feminist film necessarily, but you can't help but root for this character. She's been so hard done by. So there's a lot of nuance even in this, right? A lot of nuance even in the idea of just transplanting an, the Amazon woman into a story to kind of show her off as the evil bad one. Uh, although that is more often than not what happens. So you also find that time travel is a popular theme in early science fiction TV, TV and film. And uh, this surprisingly often involves a connection to the classical period. So what do you find from studying these? I found that they, they can't resist the urge uh, with TV in particular, but also um, film. There is a practical uh, dimension to this. So a uh, TV series will have these things lying around on set. They will have a pre-built ancient Greece set. And so when they're churning out 30 episodes a season, they'll stick a Greece episode in or throw down a Roman episode. Uh, but they, 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 the kind of <laughs> analytical approach to these is that, let's say, Time Tunnel, for example. Uh, this was back in the 60s. Uh, two uh, handsome, well-dressed gentlemen uh, in America go back in time to do stuff, to see things and fix things. So they go back to the Trojan War, which is treated entirely as history here, and they save the day. They get into lots of scrapes and problems and troubles and stuff, but ultimately they are there to um, almost make the ancients look bad. Uh, you take this particular episode of trying to find the uh, the episode name, Revenge of the Gods, but it doesn't have any gods in it. It has two men in it instead, two modern men who have traveled back in time, and they're there to help. It doesn't seem like it's necessarily intended, but they help the Greeks win the war. And uh, the two Roman episodes in here, uh, one of which involves the resurrected spirit of the Emperor Nero, they, they're, they're largely all about showing how bad um, the ancients were. So it's not dissimilar, really, to the more, more harsh and critical mid-century uh, literature, but maybe 10 years later. Yeah, coming from a feeling of superiority, I guess. Definitely. You, you do get that sense. 
uh, very, very often. Um, the Avengers episode here in the 60s, Doctor Who was the same. Star Trek, of course, is a huge part of science yeah. fiction TV, but the original series was, it was all about bringing down ancient people or people who reflected ancient values because they, they understood themselves to be better than them. Hmm. Hmm. So you also have a brief section, uh, very interestingly titled, quote, The Meaningful Banality of the Pre-Millennium, which makes it curious enough on its own to ask you about. But I also invite you to talk about your findings here, because I've always been a big fan of Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. So anytime a scholar has the time to put their focus on this movie, I take attention. And I just really enjoyed the way you connected that movie to uh, this discussion here. So can you tell our listeners what I'm talking about? Yeah, the meaningful banality of the pre-millennium, I think partly because there was a whole selection of films here in the late 80s and 90s that I I couldn't knit together. Uh, I couldn't, but I felt that the fact that I couldn't bring them together into a perfect little capsule, um, in itself said something. Uh, so you have uh, Eliminators, which takes, is amazing, by the way. It is an extraordinary film. It is so of its time. Cobbles together all the tropes like martial arts hero, cyborg, scientist woman, and puts them against the mad scientist who's obsessed with ancient Rome. And it's all about bringing him down, but there's loads of intertextual references and references to other films and and that's the kind of that's the sense you're getting here it's not aiming for the stars it's not shooting for some big uh message but it still feels like it's saying something and as you say bill and ted is in here of course how could i not how could i not uh, Socrates, it's, uh, I'll bet everybody's seen this film, but Socrates shows up and he's this sort of I read him as very much a kind of kindly old man. He's not, he's maybe a little, uh, as you say, eccentric, but he's just pleased with everything. He, he he gets dragged back to the present day with Bill and Ted. And uh, he's just, he's just, he's interested by stuff. And interesting in itself that he's not, you know, some kind of horrible villain. But my personal reading of this was, well, there, I found a lot of uh, scholarship of the time or a couple of years after the film was released. And it was a suggestion, a largely academic suggestion that we're to be laughing at the Bill and Ted, like, like, like Beavis and Boyhead kind of style. It's supposed to be thinking they're all, you know, they're silly and um, they don't, they don't read and stuff and they, they struggle at school. But actually I, I felt that Socrates in the film was supposed to stand for this, a much more generous and open approach to knowledge and education. Uh, you'll, you'll recall maybe from the film, uh, uh, Bill and Ted mistake something Socrates say. Uh, or rather, no, it's, a, it's Bill and Ted who, who um, they quote a Kansas, you know, from the rock band Kansas song. And uh, it seems to impress Socrates. And it's because Socrates doesn't know if if Socrates knew that this was some popular rock band, and he was here in the present day, he would he would he would snort and 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 say, oh whatever, I'm going back to my whatever high culture. But it's 
it's not like that. Socrates just kind of thinks it's cool, you know. <laughs> it's sort of, and that's a, partly what I mean by the banality of it all. It's it's he's just like, yeah, all right, I'm I'm into that. And Bill and Ted are like, yeah, we like you as well. Now let's go. That's kind of the film, <laughs> <laughs> and it's but it's 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 wonderful, isn't it? And we all really like it, and um, it makes us feel good. It makes us feel, you know scared or displaced or anything it's it's just nice isn't it in its own size it's, it's nice to be in that world and i found that for a fair few of those that sort of era prior to the millennium yeah the safe 90s yeah i agree with you i think there's something really nice about um making socrates not an elitist um, that's just something about the atmosphere of that film. And I think they, um, they make a connection between Socrates being, um, persecuted for corrupting the young. And as you point out, so clearly they, they did end up reading and learning something right about history. That's um, right. I, I did, I didn't mention it. If I think of another takeaway from the film, um, as you just said there, um, Ted talks, he, he introduces Socrates to his classmates um, and he refers to them, he says uh, he was a teacher of Plato, who was in turn a teacher of Aristotle, and like Ozzy Osbourne, was repeatedly accused of corruption of the young. And it's, <laughs> uh, that's, his, that's his way of understanding it, but he's also right, like he's absolutely yeah. right. <laughs> of course he is, this is, this, this is whatever shocking development that attracts the young of the day. That's Socrates. That's that's who he was. You don't need to. Uh, my thinking here is that you don't need to think of Socrates as this incredible cornerstone of half the world's culture. Uh, but you don't also need to sort of say no. It's never it's, leave Socrates alone. It's never think of him again. We should perhaps be a bit more like Bill and Ted. You know, maybe, maybe that's 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 the lesson here. I like it. I like mm. it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so let's consider some of the works of our current 21st century period. I'll ask you again about today. What are some of the key examples you found from recent film and TV and how are they engaging with classical material? Well, this really helps me because um, there are a lot of my favorite things. So the films of the time, I find a lot of the films of the time were um, in the 90s and the 2000s, up to sort of 2010s. They were either, um, or films in particular, I found that they were taking particular half frameworks or, or half skeletons of a particular story and rejigging them to turn them into something else. So one of my favorites is, is Robot Jocks, quite an early example, which is, is robots uh, who, who are effectively acting out the Iliad. And um, I just I don't need to say anything more than that. I know everyone's going to go and watch that now, because what an incredible, uh, what an incredible premise. Uh, and Pandorum was 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 t- a film in two thousand nine was taking on uh, uh, the Odyssey, and then there were films like Dark City, uh, The Signal, who that seemed to take on uh, a particular allegory of, of the cave from Plato. And Simone, the Pygmalion myth. So there were the, there's this trend, I suppose, of of taking myths or stories wholesale and poking holes in it and filling it in with um, what you needed there. 
sort of the essence of reception, I suppose, uh, on the creation end, such that um, Simone, for example, could tell the Pygmalion myth, but do so by um, turning Galatea into a, a, a virtual construct. And in that way, you get to retell the myth and interrogate the myth, but also interrogate the modern world um, by exploring what happens when um, technology goes too far, for example. But as we might be, as we're all, we all love this idea of re-enchantment that rears its head again, especially on TV, but also in cinema, this idea that truth and mathematics and science and, and, and things that you can you can basically touch and see and and know they aren't really everything anymore right so um everything from Battlestar uh, galactica the, the recent one to the x-files and most of the more recent star trek and i'm feeling we have the the matrix uh, children of men, even I think I've got in here. Yeah, and the whole purpose of these things, really, when it comes to taking Greek and Roman material, and especially Greek mythology, is to put them in there in one way or another to demonstrate how spirituality can be useful, I guess, but never in any direct way. Uh, Battlestar Galactica. I don't want to spoil anything for people who haven't seen it yet because it's brilliant. But here it comes. Uh, Battlestar Galactica's finale ultimately proves that you need to be scientifically minded and spiritually open at the same time to achieve the best outcome. And uh, that, to me, is, is as vague as it could possibly get. That's that's as abstract as it can be, right? So the Greek mythology that is at the very core of Battlestar Galactica's human culture and the science that allows them to fly around in space are not just equally important, but need to be fused in some way for us to take the next step as humans, which is crazy, right? But that's what I found. It's a... An extension of that re-enchantment of that that sort of vague, wobbly spirituality that pervades the twenty first century. Mm -hmm. I like your phrase, wobbly spirituality. Wobbly, yeah, yeah. I'm <laughs> coming up with all sorts of words. <laughs> all right, so let's turn now to video games. How early do you detect classical reception reflected in this much younger medium, and what are these examples like? I mean, the, the weird thing about games is that, that, that the ancient world has been there since the very beginning, more or less, like the 70s, uh, very first text adventures. And science fiction, similarly, is, is, is the first game, as they say, the first video game, Space War, which is about piloting a tiny spacecraft to fire at enemies, trying to stay out of a gra gravity well in the center of the screen. That's science fiction. But the two don't really get to meet for a little while yet. Uh, if I recall right, it's the 80s 
and especially when game development is kind of wild west so people are able to create rudimentary games in their own homes so roberta williams uh, creates time zone in 1982 and this is not what you would you know anybody who doesn't play games it's, it's not at all what you're imagining it's it's uh, static images and text on screen and uh, but because it's so open right these games allow you to um, do anything you all you need is a program you're not filming a scene you're not even writing a book or anything you're you're just creating a program and there's an immense amount of freedom in that uh, what I did find strange was that Science fiction in the 80s, not unlike um, the literature in the 30s and 40s, and TV and film, especially TV in the 60s, they're all about time travel. It's the first real thread I uh, managed to isolate, was that science fiction video games in the 80s, when they crossed over with the ancient world, were all about time travel. It's a time zone that takes you back to uh, ancient Rome. Uh Lords of Time takes you to ancient Rome, <laughs> and it kind of goes on like that. Uh, it's 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 taking you there, and not to talk games down or anything because I you know I love games. I that that's my uh, that's my first major research project and everything. But it isn't necessarily trying to say anything. It's not about the message it's trying to tell in these early days. It's about the interest is about the fact that you are hands-on. It doesn't really need to give you a, an enormous amount of subtext in the, these early 80s video games. It's not trying to teach you a thing necessarily. The, the, the thrill of it, what really makes it urgent, is the fact that for the first time you get to be there as close as you possibly can. You get to be in these ancient worlds. And that seems to be what the, the main draw was in the 80s. So what do you think are some of the most com interesting or compelling instances of classical reception in video games? And what do you think we can understand from those examples about the significance of the classics in contemporary culture? Oof, okay. Uh, hmm. A lot of the um, stuff I found in, uh, in video games was, was trying to relate it to the previous chapters, speaking in more practical terms. But... One of the most interesting things about games these days, I think, let's take Fallout New Vegas, for example. Uh, Fallout New Vegas is, is a post-apocalyptic virtual world uh, and the players can more or less freely traverse, right? They, they create a player, create a character, I should say, and the, and, the, and the player uses that character to explore this world. But the world is populated. It has internal politics and factions and stuff. And, one of the factions here that you can choose to join up with is um, uh, called Caesar's Legion, and it's uh, a bunch of um, oh, yeah, okay, men, all right, a bunch of men in this um, near future post-apocalypse who have decided to adopt Roman ways because they believe this is the way forward for humanity. This is how to rebuild a nuclear wasteland: is to be Roman. And it is really interesting in this game that you get to be Roman effectively, but in this sort of futuristic science fiction um, nuclear wasteland. In this particular instance, it's pretty much impossible to be the good guy. 
because being Roman here is being the worst person ever. It is practicing mass murder and slavery and such. Uh, it's it's weird to, to do that, that you can do that in these things, but it allows you to, it does allow you to do that. Effectively, that's what Fallout New Age is, is all about, is, is the antiquity within that. It is a very substantial mode of playing that game, but it is quite straightforward in showing you, or in fact, allowing you to action, uh, put into practice just how terrible it is to be what you might quote unquote authentic Roman. Beyond that, I, I did find an awful lot of what we've already talked about twice now, I think. Um, particularly in the Mass Effect series, is that bits and pieces of the ancient world will be pulled out of the past and put into a much wider world. And it often gives this sense that, again, it's a, very much a vagueness, really. It's, it's this approach to science, spirituality, reverence of the past, weariness of the past, and et cetera, et cetera. And sort of promoting this uh, all-encompassing idea that we have to be to be whole people, to be a progressive species. We need to take bits and pieces of everything in this vague, abstract way. Yeah, actually, all media uh, in science fiction seem to do that, which is cool. Yeah, that is fascinating. Your first example there almost struck me as maybe a... Um post-colonial maybe you know post-colonial ish in being um critical in the sense that it shows the violence of of rome maybe maybe i'm reading too mm -hmm. much into it but um you get a lot of mention of it in um all the mediums that i i took a look through like uh, even 60s doctor who when they went back to rome uh, they really pushed to highlight how awful it was like you know, it's it's awful and horrible and dirty and violent, and there are slaves and there and and people have to fight each other for entertainment and stuff. And you can read it certainly, you can read that kind of thing. But yeah, this is very much a hands-on. You, the player, must do that to be Roman. Now do it, and then you do it, and you feel awful. You know, that's it's it's really making you not want to be Roman, which I guess is quite post-colonial in its way. Yeah, interesting. So after engaging in this rather expansive survey of classical reception in science fiction stories across media, is it possible to answer why this source material seems perhaps counterintuitively to be a perennial point of inspiration for a genre otherwise so interested in science, technology, and looking to the future? How do you mean? Um, well, just that because science fiction, like thinking of the um, mid-century literature, right? Very um, in love with its own scientific reasonableness and rationality and so forth. And yet, um, as you've indicated, and you're not the only one, um, there is a ton of classical reception throughout uh, science fiction. And this would seem on its face to be counterintuitive. Why is something so interested in looking forward, always looking back? And I just wondered if, because you have had a chance to um, consume so much and get such a broad picture, uh, yeah, I just wondered if you had any thoughts about that question. Well, that was part of the, the, the reason for such a broad approach 
one of them was entirely personal because I wanted to. And uh, the other one, the more important one, is that I really did want to see if it was always going to be like that. I did want to see if our, our initial assumptions that something that is all about looking forwards uh, and so uh, crossing over something that is, it just is in the past, right? Uh, is always going to end up like that. But it is worth reassessing, I guess, some of those conclusions because science fiction isn't always looking at the future, even when it is futuristic. Science fiction is about now. It's about, it's always, it's produced now. You know what I mean? Like science fiction that is right now is produced now. So the science fiction you consume, you do it now in the in this present moment. And the ancient world does belong it did happen in the past, right? Let's say ancient Greece happened in the past. But the ancient Greece, as we take it on now, as we understand it, as we encounter it, also happens now. So in one sense, it makes perfect sense that th these, are, these are things that we are doing as, 20, as 2023 humans. That's, you know, that's, that, that's fine. That's, as straightforward as it gets. At the same time, we, we do nonetheless practice science fiction as something that is looking elsewhere, if not forwards, whereas we take on the Greeks and Romans as something that is retrogressive. It's, it is in, It happened in the past. Perhaps it belongs in the past. But I think because there are so many examples in here and I've tried to sort of categorize them, I suppose, such that you can see those threads. There are so many examples where you can, you can spin the ancient world and remold and reform it in such a way that tells your story and gets across your, let's say a progressive political message, for example, is not something you would identify classical Greece with. Um, but in doing so, you make that progressive political point and you allow classical Greece to be politically progressive. You know, it's, it is not just possible, not just doable, but it is being done. It has been done and it is being done. I think it more often than not, it depends on what the uh, creators with the capital C want to do with it because there is no straightforward way of interpreting the ancient world. There's no straightforward way of doing science fiction. Yeah, yeah, well put. <laughs> well, Ross, I've taken up a lot of your time, but in the few minutes we have left, tell us what you're currently up to. Yeah, well, I actually, I left uh, academia a couple of years ago. Um, I may have said already. Uh, I'm currently writing for games working in the creative end of, uh, of video games there's lots of writing and character work and stuff uh i haven't left academia behind um entirely i uh i don't know whether i would go back into full-time academia maybe you never know perhaps to do something in, in science fiction or in video games specifically if i was to do any more uh of these big projects about like one thing about the Greeks and Romans in this one thing. I would love to do cyberpunk because it's one of my favorite things in the whole world. And I didn't do anything on it in this book and cyberpunk is kind of subgenre of science fiction. It's just, 
yeah, I, I can't get enough of him. And um, the influences of, of, of the ancient world in um, like occultism and new age belief, uh, like modern occultism, modern new age belief, I think would be really interesting as well. Um, for similar reasons, I guess, because it's it's this thing that belongs in the past that is being taken to the present to guide our future, I, I guess, is, is very fascinating to me. So, yeah, as for now, I'm going to... I don't know. I guess I'll be working in games for now, but I, I, I don't know. It, it's, it depends on if the academic kind of landscape changes, then, you know, makes it easier for people to make a living in academia than maybe... But I guess I'll never stop researching and I'll never have, never stop having this special place in my heart for the ancient world. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Um, I love this topic of your book. As I was telling you, my own research is along a lot of these themes. So it was just really fun to be able to chat with you and share some of these ideas. I'm really glad you were free. I'm very glad that you let me go on and on so much you're very generous with your time there i appreciate it no the pleasure was all mine so if you do write that next book about cyberpunk Mm. which i too love a lot please do hit me up and come back to the show yeah all right let's oh yeah okay let's co-author the thing instead okay you heard it it here first folks that's right the new project begins all right (laughs) (laughs) all right wonderful thank you so much ross we'll talk to you the next time Great. Thanks very much. Okay. Goodbye. I want to thank you for listening to New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Once again, I'm Carrie Lynn Evans, and I've been speaking with Dr. Ross Clare about his new book, Ancient Greece and Rome in Modern Science Fiction, Amazing Antiquity, published by Liverpool University Press. If you enjoyed this podcast, please write us a positive review in your podcast player, post about us on social media, or tell a friend. I'm also interested in hearing from you about your thoughts on this podcast and the material we cover. Have you noticed ancient Rome popping up in your science fiction? What was your thoughts about that? Did it seem natural or did it seem strange looking backward? Tell me about it. You can find me on Twitter at Carrie Lindland. That's at C-A-R-R-I-E-L-Y-N-N-L-A-N-D. Do you have a book you'd like covered on one of our shows? Contact us through our website, newbooksnetwork.com. Also, be sure to like the New Books Network page on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where you'll see every time we post a new interview. In the meantime, I'll wish you an à la prochaine from Quebec until my next conversation about new books. <laughs>